Welcome back to Season 2 of the Clean Water Park, the show about the challenges and successes in restoring and protecting water quality. My name's Jeff Burkus, and I'm talking to dedicated professionals across the country to build an understanding of how policy and science work together to meet the goals of the Clean Water Act for fishable, swimmable, and drinkable water quality in our nation's waters. This month, we've got a really fun episode. We're heading up to Great Bay in New Hampshire. You'll hear four interviews, starting with Ted, who works for the state of New Hampshire, Kala, a researcher at the University of New Hampshire, an oyster farmer named Jay, and finally Evan, the chef of a restaurant in nearby Portsmouth. This was a particularly fun episode because I, well, I followed the flow of the conversation early to learn more about how the Water Quality Restoration Project works to enhance the research that is being conducted in Great Bay, and understanding that ecological relationship led me to want to know more about oyster farming and creating these viable oyster beds within Great Bay for farmers like Jay, who you'll hear from, and how that then provides fresh and delicious oysters for chefs like Evan to create local seasonal dishes. So this was a lot of fun to put this one together. I really look forward to hearing from all of you what you thought of this one. But enough of me talking up top. I want to get right to the interviews. We're going to start with my interview with Ted. Ted Deers, New Hampshire Department of Environmental Services. Well, Ted, welcome to the Clean Water Pod. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. All right, Ted, let's talk about Ted first. I want to talk about the Great Bay and I want to talk about what's going on, but I want to talk about Ted. So give me a little background. Where did you go to school? Where'd you grow up and, and why water quality? So I love talking about Ted. Uh, so <laughs> I was an only child. Uh, so my universe is sort of a Ted centric one. So this is great. So I, uh, I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and uh, got out of there as quickly as I possibly could because, you know, I was 18 and that's what you do. I uh, ended up in Wisconsin at uh, uh, Ripon College, for those of you who know, uh, who know Wisconsin. Was uh, studied economics. After that, I did what most economic majors do. I waited tables and uh, ended up moving to New Haven, Connecticut, where I heard a speech by the dean of the forestry school there and said, that's what I got to do. And so I ended up going to the uh, Yale Forestry School and got a master's degree in uh, environmental management. Since then, I've worked in the nonprofit world uh, for a little while in a watershed association. Uh, and then I've worked for the state of New Hampshire for 27 years uh, through a whole variety uh, of different positions, starting out in uh, wetlands restoration did salt marsh restoration, dam removals, things like that uh, on a seacoast area. Directed our coastal zone management program. Uh, yes, New Hampshire does have a coast and it's a darn nice one. So did that for, for a number of years and then moved up in charge of our watershed management bureau, which is sort of all things surface water quality. And more recently in the last year and a half, I've moved up to the assistant director of our water divisions. So I'm essentially in charge of operations for all of the water programs, uh, drinking water, surface waters. So it's great. Uh, I get to get a, a, nice, uh, a nice view across the entire water landscape. I wonder how, what percentage of people go from Colorado to Wisconsin and the reverse. Uh, being a, a native Iowan, I would imagine most Midwesterners are moving out to the Mountain West and not in the reverse. Right. I would be part of the attempted mass balance uh, for the continent. 
uh, to make very sure well, it doesn't you know fall off one of the sides. So yeah, yeah, that was my intent was to help with that mass balance. And then you and then you went from Wisconsin with all the cheese to where they melt the cheese on pizza in New Haven. Best pizza in the world. The best pizza in the world. All right, well, let's talk about the Great Bay. I know that there's a lot of very interesting stuff going on, but let's set the scene of sure. where the Great Bay is relative to New Hampshire and into the rest of New England. Great Bay is a large flooded inland estuary. So it is uh, separated from the ocean by uh, the Piscataqua River. Uh, Piscataqua River is the border between Maine and New Hampshire. And there are five rivers which flow into this sort of flooded valley, uh, which, is, uh, which is Great Bay. So 14,000 years ago, when the glaciers um, had receded, uh, Great Bay was pretty much just a big marshy area where rivers kind of came together. And as sea level rose over the last 10,000 years or so, uh, we have now a, a flooded estuary and it is uh, largely undeveloped uh, around its shoreline, a lot of conservation land. It's hard to see and to get to. Uh, most of the bridges that you go across, you'll see the Piscataqua River, uh, you'll see a little bit of water bodies, but it's kind of unknown. Um, there are so many people, even in the small state of New Hampshire, uh, 1.3 million people or so live here that have never been to Great Bay and really don't even know where it is. So it is kind of a hidden gem. It is one of the national, it's in the National Estuaries Program, and it is also a Great Bay Reserve. So it's one of the re research reserves, as well as our Coastal Zone Management Program. So we've got a lot of overlapping resources and jurisdictions that occur within that particular watershed. So you say it's a hidden gem, it's near the town of Portsmouth, uh, and it's near the border with Maine, but what is it used for? How often do people show up? And you said a lot of New Hampshire residents don't know that it's there. So what are we talking about, you know, in terms of usage and in terms of, uh, you know, just how many people go through there every year? Sure. It is very much a recreational resource. Lots and lots of people do take their boats to go uh, fishing, um, to go, you know, just recreating. There's a lot of canoes and kayaks. Uh, especially, you know, sea kayaks. It's really nice. There's lots of little nooks and crannies to explore uh, in, in a boat. There's um, excellent wildlife habitat. In the past, when it actually used to freeze, uh, you would get a lot of smelt fishing uh, on fish from, you know, with, with fish, sa fish shacks. And so that was a big thing. Uh, and a lot of lobstermen back in the day would catch all of their, their bait in Great Bay uh, before heading offshore. Uh, there's still a lot of lobster traps out there. We had a very extensive oyster beds throughout uh, the Great Bay system. That was quite a uh, you know an attraction. It's never been a commercial fishery, but it was a highly recognized uh, recreational fishery that was essentially decimated by Dermo and MSX, two diseases which get uh, which oysters get, and as well as over. Uh, overfishing. So basically we've lost from historic measures, probably like 90 to 95% of oyster stock. So that's gone down significantly. Nowadays, it is a highly sought after recreational area. Again, because it's so um, sparsely developed around the shoreline, especially in the fall, leaf peeping is exceptionally good. And 
there's a, a now a growing oyster aquaculture. So 10 years ago, we had essentially one uh, aquaculturist. Today, we have 14 different farms uh, now producing, probably getting close to a million oysters a year, which is you know truly beneficial uh, for the water quality because those guys are cranking water through you know, all day long, all year long, and especially for sequestration of, uh, for, for, of nutrients. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting uh, development that's occurred uh, over the past decade as, as it's been really fun to watch these farmers um, begin to create a community for themselves and a whole ecosystem of their own with uh, distributors and and, uh, and and sellers and and restaurants and everything else now revolving festivals uh, revolving around that uh, that oyster culture. Yeah, talk a little bit more about oysters themselves, if you can, about their relationship with water. I mean, they need a certain level of water quality to be able to live and strive, but they also improve water quality, right? So maybe right. there's this interesting balance with oysters and estuaries like the Great Bay. Absolutely. This is one of the complexities of the estuary systems. It's not for the faint of heart to study estuaries because you have so many of these, what we call confounding variables. And so there's no one thing that causes uh, something. And there's no one thing that responds to something. It is highly inter interrelated. So if you think about the oysters, they were, you know, pumping through gallons and gallons and gallons uh, of water a day. And when they were, and when there were millions of them, that was cleaning the water in Great Bay to a great extent. So yes, they do need clean water, but what they're also capable of doing is cleaning that water. Now, what you see in the system, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this because there's an interesting relationship between eelgrass and oysters in that when we lost millions of oysters, we began to lose eelgrass. And that's because the water became more cloudy. Eelgrass was less able to, to, uh, to, to survive. As eelgrass died off, it had less sediment trapping capabilities that made the water dirtier. So we ended up on this feed, you know, what would be, I think, what the scientists would call a positive feedback loop and positive not meaning good, uh, positive meaning in a general direction. Uh, like a vicious cycle. Way. A vicious cycle. Um, so it was uh, vicious for the fishes uh, there in Great Bay as, there you go. as it basically, you know, we saw a deterioration of that ecosystem. That's obviously part of the issue, but can we, can we kind of take a step back and expand on what was or is the issue that is impacting Great Bay in terms of nutrients? Sure. So it's not just nutrients. I think I want to be clear right from the start, that, and it's because this is a, a complex system. The relationships as we understand them, certainly sediment plays a really important role. And we saw that, and you see that in the data in which you see that cycle of loss of oysters, higher TSS, you know, total suspended solids within the water, higher, you know, losses of of eelgrass, um, the less less resilient. This is one of the key pieces that we're starting to really focus on is resiliency of the ecosystem. That is, that a healthy ecosystem can withstand some of the assaults 
like very large storms in 2006. We had this Mother's Day storm. You, most people outside of New England who know of this would know of it from The Perfect Storm, uh, the book and novel uh, about the fishermen out at sea. That's The Perfect Storm. That was the Mother's Day storm of 20, 2006 that basically drove uh, huge sediment loads, um, burying type of sediment loads, as well as drove the salinity of the Great Bay to zero uh, for an extended period of time. So, so a healthy system would be able to withstand those kinds of assaults. And so what we see is we see a, a, a less resilient, a re less resilient system, which means that as you have things like high nutrient levels, and what we've seen over time is nutrient levels increasing. And this is one of the you know, sort of recent findings um, over the last decade or so when we had enough data to actually look at it, is that we do see this, this you know, fairly high levels of nutrients in certain parts of the estuary. And we see the proliferation of macroalgae, which also has an impact on the eelgrass, which therefore has an impact on oysters. <laughs> so you see that, that what really is going on is that because we have a less resilient system, that things like nutrients have a much greater impact. And that's what you start to see, especially in some areas where, uh, especially in some of where the, the mouths of some of the rivers, where they come into the estuary, where we have very low dissolved oxygen, where we do see high chlorophyll. Uh, we don't see fish kills. We're not like, you know, Tampa before they started doing all of their work. So we don't have fish kills, but we do see in certain areas, high levels of chlorophyll. And those tend to be related with high levels of nutrients in the uh, in those water bodies. And all of that relates back to the inability of the eelgrass to be able to come back in places where we would expect it to come back after some of the assaults that have been placed upon it. So it's this it's this complicated cycle, but nutrients play an important role and over nutrient you know eutrophication plays an important role in feeding macroalgae, which has an impact on, on, the, on the eelgrass, as well as decreasing water clarity with you know, chlorophyll rates in certain areas. And we do see very low clarity um, in many of those places where we would expect it to be much higher. So that's kind of the role that nutrients play within this system at this point. And, and some of the nutrient levels that we've seen are you know, three or four times what natural levels would be. And episodically, they can be very high. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's really what we see as the, the nutrient sediment, eelgrass, <laughs> oysters, all of that plays together uh, in, in that way. All right. So this sounds like really complicated issues that are happening in the Bay. So, so how are you guys as a state agency and partners throughout the state, how, how are you working on this to try to improve the water quality of Great Bay? It has been complicated. And, and I'd be lying if I didn't say it wasn't controversial at times. But what's, I think, been really interesting, and I think what's really important and why this is actually kind of a cool case study, is that all the parties from different sides, whether they were the regulated communities or the regulators or the state, which we sort of sit in the middle because EPA writes uh, the water quality permits for New Hampshire. We've all kind of come together over time 
to figure out a way through this that can be reasonable and adaptive. And I think this is really the important piece is that we continue to gather tons and tons of data. And since all of this has kind of come around and, and become more mature, the communities have become very engaged. And in fact, they're helping to fund some of the studies that are going on. And they actually help to fund some of the monitoring that's going on because it behooves them to understand what's going, you know, how, what the trends are and whether or not the improvements that they're making. And I'll come back to the improvements that have been made, uh, the investments that have been made by the communities, because it's, it's, it's really significant. We see that there's been over the past decade, and I think this is one of the most interesting parts of this, is people coming together around the science. So where we had controversies and disagreements before about the nature of the science itself, driving you know, the decisions that would be made. We actually have a collaborative science process going on right now. UNH was successful in getting uh, over half a million dollars of research money to really focus in on this question about the relationship between nutrients and eelgrass. And that's going on right now. And there's a bunch of researchers and they're doing really fantastic work, both at a macro scale and a micro scale. So that's really exciting. And what's been interesting is that the communities who are the regulated communities are actually helping to fund some of those studies, some of the studies that are particularly interesting to them because they're, they, they're one of the things that they were concerned about is that they felt, and this is kind of where we started on this, is that they felt that sediment was more important to the health of the ecosystem, sediment levels, than the nutrient levels. And so parsing that out has been very important to them. So they're actually putting hundreds of thousands of dollars a year into monitoring for some of the things that they are very interested in understanding better. All of that kind of came together through the permitting process uh, a few years ago where EPA took a really innovative approach and created an adaptive management permit. This is a unique animal. We don't know of any other like it in the country. Um, and it's, and it's a, EPA could do this because they actually write the permits in New Hampshire because we're, we don't, we're not delegated for the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System. So EPA writes that permit. And so EPA worked with the communities and the state. And this is something the state had been asking for for a long time was, how do we get to a flexible approach? It's hard to do that within the framework of the Clean Water Act. Because the Clean Water Act, it, it really does dictate how you do this. And so trying to have a flexible approach was, was challenging that, that balanced the, both the point sources, that is those, those things we're regulating, the, the dischargers, and the non-point source, that which was coming off the land, stormwater, other things that were not part of, of those permits. How do you do that outside of a TMDL? because that's what a TMDL tries to do. And we had challenges getting to a TMDL, so this was the next best approach, was understanding how do we actually come together through the permitting process to create this Great Bay uh, Nitrogen General Permit, which applies to all 13 dischargers in the estuary, gives them an adaptive management approach, which allows them to both control the point source that is their, their wastewater treatment plant, but also be able to take 
sort of uh, an adaptive approach where they're able to control the non-point source at the same time on a voluntary basis over the period of the permit, do monitoring, figure out if we're getting better or worse, and at the end of that permit, potentially ratchet down the point sources depending on what's going on with A, how successful have they been in reducing their non-point source load, their stormwater loads, other loads, and what is the response in the estuary to the reductions that have been made? So it's an innovative tool, never been tried before. Uh, we had to have, uh, you know, all the, all the stakeholders had to be involved in this conversation because if it ever, if it went to appeal, this would be very challenging for everyone. So it was really important for everybody to be on, a, be on board to try to come up with a way that we could move forward in a really constructive fashion. And I will say, and I can give some more examples of how constructive this has been, but it starts at the heart of it with collaborative science. And I, I think that that's the thing that I think is most interesting about how this has come together. Thank you so much for bringing your story and your time to the Clean Water Pod. And thank you so much for dedicating uh, your career to clean water. Well, thanks, Jeff. This is terrific. And I, I hope that, uh, you know, people will, will pick this up and, and, uh, and, and call me. Uh, and ask me questions about it because I love to talk about this stuff. Kalamazoo Piscataqua Region Estuaries Partnership at the University of New Hampshire. Well, Kala, thank you so much for joining the Clean Water Pod. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. All right. So we just talked to uh, Ted from New Hampshire and he talked about the Great Bay and we're really excited about the project and how, how things are moving along there and, and what's happening in that watershed. But one of the things that he talked about that I found really interesting was the research that's happening with water quality, with eelgrass and with oysters and the relationship and this kind of dynamic that's happening in the Bay and, and around that area. Can you kind of big picture start us off with what the research question is and the progress that you guys have had at the University of New Hampshire? Absolutely. The main research question is how can we restore eelgrass back to the levels that it had in the mid 1990s? There are less research questions, less complicated research questions around the oysters because the things that are happening there are a little more known, a little less complex. Some oyster researchers might differ with me on that, but I feel like the questions around eelgrass are a lot more, a lot more difficult. Some people will point out that there's interactions between eelgrass and oysters. And this is true. This is less of a compelling research topic because we just know it's true. The more you help eelgrass, the more you help oysters and vice versa. They both are really amazing for water quality. But the research questions are really, okay, how are we going to bring both of these habitats back? And while they're both incredibly important, the eelgrass question is a little bit more high priority and a little bit more complicated. I feel my spider sense just tingled when I said that oysters were, were, that eelgrass was more high priority because there's been this little bit of a competition between these two habitats and the people that study them. And I really want to avoid that. They're both really, really important. The questions around them are, are more confusing. So there's a little bit more of, a, of an urgency to solve those. 
So what is the, you say, you just know that there's a positive relationship. So if you help one, you help the other. If you hurt one, you hurt the other. So what is the science, what does the science say about the relationship between this eelgrass and oysters from just sort of a big picture level? Is it like habitat, uh, you know, it helps reinforce? Is there, is there some sort of benefit that the eelgrass uh, does to the water that helps the oysters? Like big picture, like what are we talking about here? Yeah, so really big picture, both habitats help each other. For example, eelgrass, because it's this these long floating ribbons of plant tissue, in the water really slows down water currents. When water currents slow down, things that are being suspended in the water start to fall out. It's like when you're on a bike and you completely stop your forward motion, you fall over. And it's the same thing in a water current. When that water really slows down, the things that are being held up due to the velocity of the water, they just kind of trickle out of with out of suspension. And so sediments, they, they essentially slow down and filter sediments. If you have too much sediment in the water, oysters will not feed well. So there's an example of how eelgrass benefit the oysters. Well, how do oysters benefit eelgrass? The main way is because oysters eat plankton, uh, phytoplankton, right? These just free floating little organisms that photosynthesize. Awesome, important plankton. We love it. We, we need that in our ecosystem. When you have a little more pollution than you're supposed to have, and plankton levels get too high, eelgrass will start to suffer because the plankton are hogging all the light. The main thing that eelgrass needs is light. So because oysters are sitting there just gobbling, they're like pool filters, gobbling plankton, they will increase light for eelgrass. Both of these habitats are fantastic structure for herring and other little shrimp, little macroinvertebrates, all these important things that we always talk about when we say we love nature, the whole beautiful food web. Both eelgrass and oysters are fantastic for the food web. So, and the, and, and, and the food web eelgrass relationship and the food web oyster relationship isn't one way. People always think, oh, you know, the fish need the eelgrass. But it turns out that the eelgrass need the fish too. And I can say more about that if you want me to. Yeah, absolutely. How does that happen? Well, there's a really fantastic story that I, I've told a number of times. I just think it's one of these, it's one of the reasons I got into ecology in the first place. Ecology, one of the things that's really attractive about ecology is there are these great mysteries and sometimes you can actually solve the mystery. And, and that's always really satisfying and fun. And, and one great example of that comes from Monterey in California used to have really great eelgrass beds. Then they noticed that all the otters, for different reasons, started going away. When the otters were gone, the eelgrass went away. And of course, everybody was like, well, that's just got to be a coincidence. How could otters be keeping the eelgrass around? Well, it turns out that the otters were eating the crabs. When the otters went away, the crabs went crazy. And it's just because they're, they're omnivores. They eat friggin' everything. All the little shrimp, arthropods, and all these cool little bugs that either swim around in the water or live in the, in the sediment, they were just devouring all of them. And what people didn't realize was those things would come out onto the eelgrass blades and eat 
the algae off of the eelgrass blades. The same way when you go into a pet store, you see those snails that are constantly cleaning the glass tanks. Well, they brought the otters back. The otters rechecked the crabs. Eelgrass came back. So fish do many of the same things as, as the otters, especially when, when in the old days when we had large fish, right? We had salmon, we had sturgeon, we had big cod, skates, all these other fish. They would keep the crabs in check, and then that, in, in, that ends up helping the eelgrass. So that's just one great example of how complicated ecosystems are and how everything is linked yeah, I think that's great. I think you, you kind of talk about that idea of equilibrium, right? Where mm -hmm. you're you, you're not saying the otters eliminated crabs or you know took them out. They they kept their numbers at uh, at a number that worked with the ecosystem. So you still allowed for those little critters to operate in the way that they did, which helped the the grass, which helps the the oysters, and this whole dynamic ecosystem that you have. If you pull something out of it, that that whole ecosystem is going to change. It's going to change, and and uh, ecologists will say that they can essentially have a new equilibrium, a less favorable equilibrium, and and it can be difficult to break out of of one of these less favorable equilibrium, and there are some people who fear that we in the Great Bay Estuary, especially we we really can't talk about the Great Bay Estuary as being one thing, because out near the ocean, Portsmouth Harbor is very different from Great Bay. And so I have to remind myself not to talk about the Great Bay Estuary as if it were one organism. But it's hard not to because it is really all connected. The, you know, everything swirls around, but they're different. Um, and so a lot of people fear that the upwater portion of the estuary, the Great Bay, right, which is the area south of Adams Point, where the water is much more calm, it's much uh, flatter, which is why we have all that that eelgrass there because it's it's not as deep. And there are a lot of people who feel that that area, especially, has come into this new equilibrium that it's going to be difficult to get out of because eelgrass has gone down. If you're just looking at acres of where the eelgrass is, we've lost about fifty percent. But if you're talking about the actual biomass, if you were to weigh all the plant material today and compare it to what we had in 1996, there are some estimates that we've lost 75%. And so when you lose that much of the structure out in the, in the bay, it's possible that we've created a new system and a new equilibrium that is really much more dominated by murky water, murky because there's just so much sediment and not enough structure to settle the sediment out, as I referred to before. And the other thing is, as you take in what I just said is, okay, we lost all that eelgrass that I just mentioned. Since, 19, in the, since the early 90s, we've lost over 80% of our oysters. So that's a double whammy in terms of the bottom structure in the Great Bay. So how do you get out? What's what what is the research telling you to try to pull back into those 1990s levels? And have you had any success doing so? Well, we've had success in working together as communities in this in this watershed, which is really, really heartening. And I, I feel proud to be part of this community and that we're making the progress. The thing that's difficult for me 
you took me back in time to 2015 when we were urging folks to reduce pollution. As an optimist, I foresaw a future where communities did reduce, and then we saw the reaction in the ecosystem. Problem is we only got part of that rosy scenario. The communities did reduce, but we haven't seen the recovery yet. There are a number of potential reasons for that. But I'm very sad about that because I wanted, you know, I wanted to, I wanted the communities to feel that reward. Look what we did. The problem partially is that it's not just a story of pollution anymore. It's also a story of changing weather. We just don't have the same weather that we used to have. Anybody with eyes and ears tells you that. You can debate. Scientists don't debate about the cause. Scientists, there are 99 point uh, 5% in consensus about the cause of all this. But anybody with eyes and ears will tell you, yeah, we are, we do not have the same weather. So that is going to have an impact on these ecosystems. The fact that we continue to develop and put in lots more houses and decrease the area that is open and is able to infil let the water infiltrate and better, better handle storms. That is also going to mask the really great things we're doing on the pollution side. Ted mentioned some progress in terms of some of the rebounding with, with oysters and more farmers farming uh, in the area. Do you see any recovery in the, in the numbers yet, or are we still in that process of fighting uh, climate change and, and fighting uh, additional sediment that's coming in through different weather patterns and, and just sort of swimming upstream, so to speak. Yes, we are seeing some. And I, and I do want to add to my last comment about eelgrass. We're not seeing the positive effects in the Great Bay, but it's possible that we are seeing the positive effects in Portsmouth Harbor. So when you look at the eelgrass in Portsmouth Harbor, it generally shows an improving trajectory since about 2011 and you can link that you can there's a ex, you can explain that not statistically but but there's it makes sense that that's happening from what we understand about other estuaries because of changes in precipitation patterns but also when you look at the eelgrass in Portsmouth Harbor the areas closest to the ocean tend to have the quickest recoveries when you change pollution. The sediments in Portsmouth Harbor, imagine, I don't know, imagine one of these typical aquaria where you look down at the bottom and the sediments that coarse, almost like uh, it's, it's bigger than sand. It's like small little pebbles almost. That's what the sediment is like in Portsmouth Harbor. What that means is it's not going to hold on to a legacy of pollution and or organic matter that settles to the bottom. Because when the pollution is reduced, that all is just going to flow right out of there. It's not going to hold on to it. You go to Great Bay and you stick your hand in that and you feel like you've gone to, uh, you know, Michael's craft store and bought a whole lot of Sculpey and you've just stuck your hand into this just incredibly thick, viscous clay. And that is going to hold on to whatever you've done in the past. It's going to hold on to it a lot longer. And people will say sometimes it takes 10 years for the ecosystem to react to a change. So that's why we might be seeing something different in terms of Portsmouth Harbor versus Great Bay on the eelgrass story. With regard to oysters, there was about a 25-year time period where 
you know, back in the early 90s, we had, I think, 26 million oysters in the whole estuary. Then we went down to less than 2 million by the end of the 90s. And we pretty much stayed between 2, 3 million all the way until the last two or three years. We got back up above 5 million. At no other time have we been above 5 million until the last two or three years. I think partial credit has to go to all the folks who are doing oyster restoration. University of New Hampshire, the Nature Conservancy, the, the New Hampshire chapter of the Nature Conservancy. There's a really large cadre of homeowners who are essentially oyster farmers from their docks. They're putting out these little baby oysters, treating them like little family members and raising them over the oyster season. That's also helping. And so I think the story there, we are starting to see the result of our good actions a little bit more quickly there. The difference between, from my point of view, the difference between now and when I first started working here in 2015, there's a lot more collaboration and we, we should celebrate that. There aren't a whole lot of, doesn't feel sometimes like there's a lot of good news these days. And I think we, we should celebrate and really bask in this collaborative energy that New Hampshire and Maine communities are displaying right now. It's fantastic. A little bit more, not, not quite as much of a, of a party theme is I believe many of us are beginning to recognize where we thought we had this very specific problem around the relationship between nitrogen and eelgrass. There's good news and bad news. The good news is we've moved beyond what was a very contentious debate. And yes, nitrogen is very important to eelgrass, but it's not the only story. The bad news is there's a lot that needs to be done for us to have a healthy watershed ecosystem. So I'm not just talking about the salty portion. I'm talking about the freshwater portion too. And they're connected. And the, and the, salty, and the salty portion, there is a lot more we have to do. It's a little bit like the difference between going to a doctor and him saying, oh yeah, you just have to cut out dairy. And you saying, oh man, that's going to be really hard. I love dairy. Versus him saying, well, you got to cut out dairy. I need you to start running more. I need you to decrease stress. I need you to take more vitamins. You know, it's pretty much, you got to do everything because the forces that are pushing against us now with these changing weather patterns is so significant that if we don't do everything we can do, there's a chance we're not going to see the results. And I would add to, to, to folks who are feeling intimidated by that prospect that all of the things that we are encouraging people to do have benefits outside of the environmental sphere. By doing the things that we're talking about, you're going to have less flooding and people are, are going to experience less times where they're cut off from going to hospitals because streets are underwater. You're going to have better air quality, so there's going to be less asthma. It's better for the economy because we're going to be famous for having, for having both the ability to offer good jobs, but an absolutely gorgeous place to live and walk. That's the last message I would like to leave, leave people with. That's great. Thank you so much for your time. And, and thank you so much for your research in water quality and for uh, benefiting New Hampshire, New Hampshireites um, and Mainers. <laughs> absolutely. And thanks for having me on. Okay. Uh, my name is Jay Baker. I own a company called Fat Dog Shellfish Company. We are an oyster farm in Great Bay in New Hampshire. 
Well, Jay, I'm really excited about this conversation and thank you so much for joining me on the Clean Water Pod. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. All right. So where are you joining me right now as we as we have this interview? I actually live in uh, Newburyport, Massachusetts, which is right across the border from New Hampshire. It's interesting because uh, when I first got into oyster farming, I had envisioned doing something on the North Shore of Massachusetts. Uh, and we looked all around the Merrimack River watershed and Plum Island Sound and really just just couldn't find a spot. We're jumping right in here. But eventually my partner and I stumbled on an article that was produced by the Nature Conservancy and the University of New Hampshire. And they were really promoting oyster farming as a way to mitigate some of the nutrient impacts to Great Bay in New Hampshire. So it's a place we did not anticipate kind of looking around, but went up there. It is spectacular. It's beautiful. Uh, we met with the University of New Hampshire uh, and really kind of decided that this this was the place for us. Um, and the rest is, is kind of history from there. So we've talked with Ted Deers in New Hampshire. We've, we've talked with the University of uh, New Hampshire researcher. And yep. one of the things that I found really fascinating was this relationship that, you know, they're researching in terms of water quality and oysters and, and eelgrass and, and trying to rehabilitate this, this wonderful water body. And right. this, this idea of oysters kept coming up. I find it very interesting. Let's start with as an oyster farmer, what does that mean? Because I'm from the Midwest. So when I hear farmer, I think of... <laughs> you know, tractors and, you know, planting yeah. corn and soybeans, right? So, so let's, let's talk about farming oysters. It's not really that different from some of the, the terrestrial farming. In fact, when people ask me this question, I often will point to someone who's growing corn. You know, you, you buy seed, um, you take, you, you plant the seed, you put it in the appropriate place and you kind of nurture it as it's growing. Oyster farming is uh, not too different in the sense that we also buy seed. So there are hatcheries uh, around New England that have their own broodstock and they produce tiny baby oysters that we can that we can purchase and kind of nurture. The big difference is that whereas a terrestrial crop is produced in one season, an oyster takes three to four years to grow. So it's it's um, you're you're nurturing that crop over a really long period of time. So essentially in the spring every year, we'll get seed oysters. Um, they will spend the first few months of their lives in something called a floating upweller system, which is really a series of buckets that we pump water across and we make, we it causes those oysters to kind of be force fed and they grow really fast. Uh, after a few months, the oysters are moved out to our sites that are actually out in Great Bay. And so a typical site will be somewhere between one and four acres. And then they'll spend the next few years of their lives in cages and bags, plastic bags of various sizes, um, until they're ready to harvest and, and go to market. And really the key uh, with oyster farming is that you want to get as much flow across those oysters as possible. The more flow they get, the more access to food they have because they're filter feeders uh, and the faster they'll grow. So you want to match the size of the oyster with the size of the mesh of the container they're in 
too big of a mesh, the oysters will just fall out and you'll lose them. Too small, they won't get enough flow. So over the course of that three-year period, we are constantly sorting, um, restocking, and cleaning the gear that we have out there. And that that's really the name of the game with oyster farming. I love it. Um, does your does your boat have a name? I, I think I want to like just kind of paint a picture of what's happening when you're when when Jay Baker and company are out on this boat. Yep, we have a couple boats. Um, the name of our company is Fat Dog Shellfish. So of course, the first boat is called the Obese One. Uh, I'm, I might like to take that one back, actually. Uh, but that that's our primary boat. It's a pontoon boat. So a lot of the farmers in Great Bay use pontoon boats because they have nice flat deck surfaces. We can add cranes to those boats so we can haul the gear onto the deck, harvest the oysters out of the gear, service the gear, whatever we need to do. Uh, our second boat is a Carolina skiff, uh, and that one is called the Dingo. So we're we're all in on the the dog the dog names. So all right, you're you're out on on the the Dingo. You're out on the skiff, you know, and and you're you're doing this work. How many other farmers are out there in the Great Bay area? How many uh, oyster farmers can this water body support right now? Yep. So that that's always uh, an interesting part of my story. I'm actually one of the old timers in the oyster business in New Hampshire. So we started our farm in 2012. And at that time, we were the third license in Great Bay. So there was uh, one of the professors at the University of New Hampshire had a license and there was one other commercial farmer at the time. Since then, there's been this gold rush of oyster farming in uh, in Great Bay. And now there's something like 30 licenses. So it's actually, there's a very small section of the Great Bay system that's open to aquaculture. There's Great Bay proper, which is part of the National Estuarine Research Reserve. And that that's actually off limits to oyster farming. That's where a lot of the restoration work is taking place. And then there's Little Bay, which leads into Great Bay. Uh, and Little Bay is really where most of the oyster farming is ha is happening. And that is really becoming uh, pretty tightly packed with oyster farms. And there are a couple guys now that are also farming in Hampton, in Hampton Harbor. The oyster farming has really caught on, partly because of the promotion that uh, UNH had done and the Nature Conservancy, but partly because there's just been this oyster boom over the last 10, 15 years where raw bars have popped up everywhere, uh, oysters have become, become cool again to eat. Um, and you know people are really catching on to the local food movement. Um, and so oysters, you know, which really take on the characteristics of the water where they're grown uh, have become an important part of the the locavore movement. So I'm, I'm curious, like as you're farming a lot of, again, I, I'm based in the Midwest. So yep. when I think farming, I think of, I think of corn and I think of yield. I think of, you know, how, how much you can get out of an acre of land or, you know, what, what are you able to do across the, the entire farm? And so I'm curious from the seed, you know, what percentage of those oysters make it all the way to market? Yeah. And you know, what, what kind of volume of oysters are we talking about on an annual basis coming from, from your farm or maybe from the whole Great Bay at this point? Right. Yeah. The best of the best oyster farmers will get something like 40% of their crop back from the seed they put out. So you can imagine that over the course of a three-year period, 
uh, winters are tough. You know, we lose a lot of oysters in the winter. Uh, some just never really grow. An acre of uh, license should be able to produce somewhere between 50 and 100,000 oysters per year. I don't know exactly how much acreage is licensed in Great Bay, but what's happening now is that a lot of the new growers are going in and getting more acreage uh, than they're able to immediately put into production. So compared to Massachusetts and Maine, uh, who've been kind of at this for, for decades and decades, our production, overall production is very low or pretty low um, because we're farming less area. Um, but it's also per acre, it's probably lower too because we have a lot of new growers that are still kind of growing into the space that they have, including me. So I have uh, something like 19 acres that are available to me. And I've really only put five or six acres into production. So uh, our numbers aren't huge right now, but we're really poised for, for growth. So you were you basically responded to some kind of advertisement in some way from University of New Hampshire saying like, hey, yeah. you know, we, we need oyster farmers. We need we need people to come out and help because this helps the ecosystem. This helps clean up the water. This is kind of a virtuous cycle that we can get here if we get more oysters yep. in here. And you responded to that. And, and you created a business off of this. To me, this is very interesting motivation and it's, and it's fantastic, right? This is, this is improving water quality. So what uh, part of that makes you, is part of your business? Like the, the environmental sustainability part of this, how mm -hmm. does that, how do you identify with that part? Oh, so and that is so important to our business. And that's really my background too. I, I come from a water quality and habitat restoration background and worked work for the state of Massachusetts for years. Uh, and, you know, I always say throughout that time, I was really preaching sustainability. Well, you know, these are the practices that marinas should be using or towns should be employing, you know, to improve water quality. And a lot of that was um, related to shellfish beds and keeping water around and in shellfish beds clean. And so, you know, at some point I decided, well, I'm really interested in aquaculture. I've been preaching this for, for years um, and maybe it's time to uh, take a stab at it on my own. And so that was really the draw for me. It's the, the su sustainability part of this, um, the biology, which I love. Um, and so just being a commercial oyster farmer, you know, you're, you're part of one of the few um, completely sustainable businesses that are that are out there and certainly along the coast. And then another really important piece of this, and this has really been ramping up over the last few years, is the participation of the commercial growers in Great Bay in the restoration efforts there. And so we uh, have really benefited from some programs that are led by, again, UNH, the Nature Conservancy, the Natural Resource Conservation Service is providing funding to actually buy oysters from the commercial growers to be placed onto the restoration sites. And where previously uh, UNH was kind of tackling that on their own, they've really enlisted the, the help of the commercial growers, you know, and obviously we have a lot of great experience producing a good viable oyster to actually enhance the restoration efforts that are going on. And that has been super exciting partnership um, and really great, you know, not only to connect the commercial growers with the, the uh, sustainability side of things, 
but it's also an economic boost for, for the growers. So it's really a win-win. So it really is the sustainable cycle where, you know, the, the more that you basically put into protecting and responsibly farming the area and cleaning up the water, the, the more that you're going to get out of it. And the more that other farmers like like-minded farmers like you that are invested in this particular water body, you're going to get out of it. Um, so I, I really love this. It's an ecosystem that includes the human um, and, and includes, you know, livelihoods of humans um, to, to get some, a product to table. Yeah, that, that's a really great way to put it. And um, when I was uh, prepping for this and thinking about water quality and how it relates to oysters, I kind of came up with two uh, components. You know, one is uh, what is water quality like from an ecosystem perspective? Uh, and if the water is crystal clear for an oyster with no food in it, that's, that's not what we want. Um, but we want, we want a balanced system that doesn't have too many nutrients, doesn't have too little uh, amount of nutrients. We want kind of a, an even balance. So we have, um, you know, kind of a steady bloom of plankton, not these big boom and bust cycles that we, we have seen over the years. Um, so, so we want clean water from, from the oyster per perspective, which means kind of a, a balanced system that's cycling nutrients and, and uh, not, get, not getting too much of a good thing. Um, and then there's the public health piece. Um, so if it rains uh, over an inch and a half in one event in Great Bay, the bay gets closed down to harvesting oysters. They're, they're filtering whatever is getting washed into the bay. And so the state will take action, um, DES, and, and go out and sample until we can confirm that the water is clean. So there's the ecosystem side of clean water, and there's the public health side of clean water. Um, I think those things are both getting better. Uh, in my 11 or 12 years doing this, I've seen fewer boom and bust cycles of phytoplankton. We're seeing more wild oysters that are actually setting on the oysters uh, that we have in our cages. Um, and hopefully we're reducing the amount of harmful elements that are getting washed into the bay after after a big storm. So what I love about your story, Jay, is that you you worked in water quality, worked in, in habitat restoration. You know, you're, you're, you're a scientist. And you said, hey, I've been preaching this for a long time. You know, I'm right. going to go out and do it. And so I, I feel like you are definitely someone who lived the principle of a bad day in the field is better than a good day in the office. And you said, that I'm going to make sure. that my life. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Uh, every time it's it's tough out there or the weather is terrible, just like you're, you're in it. You know, you're you're not talking about it. You're not planning for it. You're you're doing it, whether whether you like it or not. So uh that, that's really the draw for me. That, that's that's what keeps me going too, even on the, the worst days. Today, it's uh, we're going out at low tide today. It's going to be in the low 20s, I think 25 mile an hour winds. Um, so I'll have to keep in mind we're, we're doing the right thing while we're out there freezing. I love it. Well, thank you, Jay, so much for dedicating uh, this part of your career to helping water quality and, and the ecosystem in the Great Bay. And thank you so much for joining us on the Clean Water Pod. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It was really nice talking to you. My name is Evan Mallett. I'm the chef and owner of Black Trumpet, a restaurant in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Well, great. Evan, thank you so much for joining us on the Clean Water Pod. It's an honor to be here. Thank you.
All right, Evan. So tell us a little bit about your restaurant. Let's start there. So set the scene. What are we talking about? Uh, and, and just describe the restaurant in a little bit more detail for our listeners. Well, Black Trumpet opened in 2007. We're coming up on the Ides of March. We'll be celebrating our 17th birthday. It is a restaurant that has, I think, found a, a niche for itself in our community for in a number of different ways. Uh, but we, when we opened, my wife, Denise, and I set as our uh, ambitious vision uh, to be part of our community in a way that was not just our buying practices and sourcing local food, which at the time was kind of radical in and of itself. But above and beyond that, we felt that we needed to be giving back to the community on a regular basis whatever that meant. And that was situational. And we knew that that was always going to evolve. But that I think, you know, looking back 17 years later, I can say has been truly the thing that kept us uh, around, you know, through a lot of ups and downs, through a lot of variables, many of which you can't predict. So we've been fortunate to be able to survive those things. But in part, I think because of that, mentality and that mindset. So on the menu, like walk, walk me, I know you have a seasonal menu. Things change over the year. I, I did check it out before, before we sat down to talk, uh, but talk about the menu and how that shapes and shifts. So in terms of creating a seasonal menu, um, as far as I'm concerned, that's not, that's not a really crazy or radical concept. It's actually the natural state of things. And when we uh, look at our local agriculture and our local fishing, uh, both of which are incredibly vibrant in our community and, and always have been in, in our little corner of the world. I think that it's just uh, the natural state of things to work with what is available at any given time of year. So my uh, book that I, that I wrote about seven years ago is entitled Black Trumpet, uh, A Chef's Journey Through Eight New England Seasons. And uh, the publisher of the book coaxed me into putting that subtitle on the book after seeing that we changed our menu every six weeks at Black Trumpet. And, you know, if I had my ultimate uh, fantasy, I, I guess we would be changing it even more frequently than that. But a ma major menu overhaul is a, is a big deal and it's very time consuming. It's costly. Um, so, we kind of arrived at that as the ideal amount of time to capture foods from our local food shed in their prime, in their peak season. So I still adhere to that. Um, we're actually, we've been closed for a week, uh, taking our winter hiatus. But when we reopen on Wednesday, uh, we will be opening with a completely new menu. And at this time of year, it's, you know, it's slim pickings out there in northern New England. So this is always a challenging one and one that I actually really look forward to because of the challenge. Uh, it makes me reach a little bit deeper and think more about what is available. You know, we've talked a lot about Great Bay water quality. You talked about helping out the local community, which also includes local producers and also get to that in consumer, right? So, so the people that frequent the restaurant and come in and they expect obviously good tasting food. And I would assume that good tasting food starts with the ingredients and, and, and where you get them from. Um, and so what is that 
cycle for you mean in terms of being able to deliver that uh, good local food that is committed to to helping out that local community all the way to feeding and nourishing the the people that live there? Yeah. So to answer that, I actually, uh, my mind flashes back to uh, a chef in Portland, Maine, who I knew when we first opened. And for whatever reason, he responded to our uh, kind of positioning statement about uh, local food sourcing by saying that he didn't do that necessarily because he wanted to have the best ingredients. It didn't, that was his highest priority, not whether, not where they were from, but the, the, just to have the best ingredients was his priority. And I kind of bristled at that thinking, well, the goal really should be both of those things. And often when you're sourcing local food, you're getting a better ingredient because of its freshness, because uh, of that connection to the person who becomes accountable face-to-face with you when you transact with them. Um, and in this case of Great Bay, you could easily be talking about an oyster farmer who, you know, I might receive a product and let's say that oyster uh, has a funny taste or has a uh, really shallow cup, um, which is something that, you know, we've kind of tried to move away from when eating oysters uh, and, and growing them locally is trying to build this like perfect oyster cup that has lots of brine in it and allows the meat to be full and, and uh, you know, larger in size. From my perspective, in contrast to that of the, the chef in Portland, I would say that it's worth the effort to build those relationships with the producer so that everyone uh, involved in that relationship is accountable and uh, motivated to create the best product that can be made, whether it's the chef who's trying not to screw up that perfect ingredient um, and put our own you know, twist on it, whatever that may be, our own sort of creative flair. But it does come down every time to the authenticity of that product, the, the quality that is imbued in it by its, by its producer or grower. And I'm proud to say that, you know, we at Black Trumpet now can say that we do source the best ingredients and the most local ingredients. Two are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> well, and what does that mean to your patrons when they come in and they look at the menu and, and how do you present that and advertise that? as as a hallmark of of the ingredients and, and the dishes that you serve let me, let me answer the question about how we present it because i think that's really really important every day when we serve our staff meal at 4 45 before we open at five o'clock we do a thorough rundown of what's uh what we're offering in addition to our full menu on that particular night uh, we're only open for dinner, just to be to make that point clear. And it's a conversation, really, between our cooks and our servers. And occasionally, I'll have one of our growers or producers present for that conversation if I don't feel like I can represent them, you know, fully or authentically. And and so that really builds in our staff a sense of pride, a sense of confidence in how we source our food, and that conveys very directly to our consumers, to our guests at each table. And over time, I can say that what that has done is build 
a sense of security, a sense of like people feel confident that we're taking care of uh, what their conscience believes should be part of the di their dining experience. And this is definitely not true for everybody. There are a lot of people out there who want to go out to eat, have a good meal, maybe feel a little pampered and uh, are willing to pay whatever price is necessary to have that experience. And in our restaurant, we now have that group as a majority, as opposed to many restaurants where I don't think the messaging of food sourcing is as much of a priority. Um, so we've built our clientele around that to the point where even in this uh, season, which is typically the quietest time of year, we can guarantee a certain amount of regulars who come to our restaurant, not just because they like uh, the food or the ambiance or the service, all of which we try to keep at the highest possible bar, uh, but because of the story and the ethos that goes into how we source our food. So let's bring it home with the oysters. So you said you opened the restaurant in 2007. So you're coming up on your 17th anniversary. We know that through talking with, with Jay at, at Fat Dog and the researchers that oysters, oyster farming in Great Bay has come back. What have you noticed as someone who sources these ingredients uh, in terms of the quality and the quantity, the availability of those relationships that you've been able to build over your 17 years of running a restaurant? Yeah, in those 17 years, we've seen a lot of changes. We've seen uh, programs that have been developed in the world of aquaculture that are very innovative. I'm, I'm proud to say that I think the University of New Hampshire in conjunction with, with Cornell uh, does some of the, the foremost work in that field in our country and they're right in our backyard. And we regularly host uh, scientists who are doing that work in our restaurant. So the conversation is, is robust and ongoing, but in terms of like the improvement in quality over time, I think, you know, it's kind of a roller coaster to be quite honest. There, there are certain improvements in uh, shellfish aquaculture that are notable in uh, our region. The oysters that occurred naturally in Great Bay initially uh, were like shards of shrapnel. When you would go to open them, they would be very uh, fragile and uh, dangerous because the shucker would sometimes, you know, impale their hand just going right through the shell or the shell would like literally blow up in their hand. These things are sharp. So it's like, you know, a serious working hazard to have a fragile oyster shell. Some of the hardness of the shell and the thickness of it comes from diet, water temperature, water flow. Uh, and in farming, you know, with how frequently the shell is tumbled or rotated. Um, so these are all factors that are beyond my, my understanding as a chef. Uh, but knowing, and I actually had an oyster bar in Belfast, Maine for a few years. Uh, so I did some deeper digging into, you know, the, the kinds of aquaculture that create the best oysters from in my, you know, chef head, what I think are the best oysters. Um, and it, it's a lot of work. And so I think that in those 17 years since we opened, we've seen oyster farmers uh, start to put in the work that is required to create a more ideal 
oyster for shucking. And, you know, we're still not at the point where we have oysters in such an abundance that uh, the price will come down and we can sort of have them stored in brine like they do in uh, the Chesapeake or in the Gulf and other parts of North America. Um, but, you know, it's certainly a goal to think that we could get there. Um, our, our Northeast oysters from, from the Damariscotta River in Maine is really, to me, sort of the, um, the nirvana of oysters. It's the, the epicenter of quality for oysters. And we're, and we're very close to that in the Piscataqua River and in Great Bay in terms of uh, salinity and water flow, the tidal, um, you know, the intertidal zone is, is very similar in some ways. So we're a little bit behind in terms of the technology of oyster farming. And uh, I think we're gonna catch up on that soon. And I certainly hope that we'll be able to say that we have oysters of the same caliber in Great Bay that exist in mid-coast Maine uh, in the near future. Final question. What's the best way to eat an oyster? Well, I mean, I'm a purist at this point. I have to say that we're lucky that we live where we do. And if I lived in most other parts of the world where you find oysters, I would say you could slather some sauce on top of a raw oyster. Um, but here it's it's a sacred flavor. And it's so they're so diverse and so unique to their own beds and their own region, sub-region. And sometimes you could have oysters that grow a few thousand feet apart um, that taste markedly different. And they're the same species and they were raised in the same water. Um, so that distinction makes me answer your question by saying, at least for your first bite of any oyster, try it raw. Have it just shucked on the half shell. Don't add any lemon juice. Don't add any you know, cocktail sauce or mignonette or any of the other conventional toppings. Just try that oyster and get to know what we call meroir, um, which is a appropriation of the French term terroir uh, that was used in the wine world. And meroir actually refers to taking that same level of sophistication used to describe wines uh, based on where their, the grapes were grown and translating that to oysters. So there's like a whole encyclopedia in the back of my brain of what different oysters taste like and how the preparation of them can be adapted based on that. And it can also be structural. Like I said, there are oysters that are more shallow, that don't lend themselves necessarily to eating on the half shell. And then there are ones that you just want to shuck and dredge and fry very lightly, really quickly. So you know, there's a hundred and something ways to prepare oysters from the Northeast, but I would, uh, I would go with raw on the half shell, at least for your first bite every single time. Great. I love it. Thank you so much, Evan. And I appreciate all the work that you're doing in terms of uh, sourcing local and, and creating good nutritious food and supporting all of the restoration work that's happening in the Great Bay. And thank you for joining us on the Clean Water Pod. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, that's it for episode four of this season. I want to thank Ted, Kala, Jay, and Evan for talking to us about this really cool project and all of the interrelationships, how we go from the projects all the way to the table. Join us next month for episode five as we head back to Maryland to zero in on one of the successful watershed restoration projects within the Chesapeake Bay. If you have any questions about this or future episodes, please get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at CleanWaterPod or send me an email at cleanwaterpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, what questions you have, 
and what you'd like to hear on the pod. Till next time, thanks for listening.